Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to this, the latest in the Sibylline podcast series. I'm Philip Riding, the uh, lead Middle East and Africa analyst at Sibylline. And today I'm joined by Wo Yu, the uh, lead analyst for Asia Pacific, and James Barth, our North America analyst. And we're going to be discussing the G7 summit, which is upcoming this weekend down in St. Ives. It's going to kick off tomorrow uh, on Friday. And it's a three-day meeting in which US President Joe Biden will be taking his first official trip since his inauguration in January. And obviously one of the most high-profile event to be, take place internationally face-to-face since the start of the pandemic. So the summit will therefore be an opportunity for advanced economies from around the world to discuss important plans and strategy that will undoubtedly have a lasting impact on the post-pandemic world order. So James and Hugo, from what's been discussed and agreed at various ministerial meetings so far, what were going to be the main topics that will be on the agenda over the weekend? Thanks for that question. I mean, from my end, I think there are two key aspects of, of what's been discussed so far. One is the highly publicised tax reform um, and the other is climate change. Regarding the first of these, there are kind of two big aspects to what's been proposed with the tax reform. The first of this is that the G7 finance ministers have agreed to a global minimum tax rate of at least 15%, which will affect roughly around 100 large high-profit companies. And then the second aspect of it is that multinationals, these companies, would be forced to pay their taxes where they actually sell their services and products regardless of whether they have a physical presence there. the country, These countries would then be able to tax at least 20% of the profit above a 10% margin for the largest companies. And kind of subsequent to this, European countries have said that they will scrap their already existing digital services tax if and when these changes go into effect. I think there are some really important discussions around this tax. Firstly, the proposals don't, don't address the issue of, of where businesses are being taxed really in terms of generating a huge amount of global wealth. So for example, one OECD analysis last year suggested that a similar plan would only generate between five and twelve billion dollars globally, and that's across all companies and, and all jurisdictions. There are other proposals that are being floated, uh, for example, one that's based on taxing the number of users for the services that are being provided. And it, it's definitely likely that countries such as India, where there are billions of users for a service like Facebook, would be highly supportive of something like this. And whilst India is uh, virtually attending this event, something like that would probably be more considered at the G20 event next month. It's also worth noting that it has kind of already come under a lot of backfire. So in the US, there is doubt about whether it would actually be able to be passed through Congress, as pretty much every Republican has come out and opposed the deal. And then in the UK, you have the UK finance minister suggesting that they would like for the financial services firms to be exempt from this, um, as there is concern that these firms would then move to Amsterdam over such a deal. If I may quickly just touch on climate change as well, the G7 finance ministers have made a commitment to make it mandatory for corporates to report climate impacts and investment decisions, as well as strengthening central company beneficial ownership registries to to crack down on environmental crime. The UK government, or Boris Johnson, has proposed a Marshall Plan for climate change. And I I think that this really ties in kind of similar to what uh, Biden has suggested, which is the Clean Green Initiative, what he touts as a rival to the Belt and Road Initiative from China, which would provide financing for physical, digital and health infrastructure in the developing world. Um, And there is some discussion about whether these two ideas can be married together in, in the G7 and whether we can look towards a concrete solution on something like that. 
Yeah, thanks, James. Um, I think from my end, I, I would like to add, you know, besides tax reform and climate change, they're also expected, of course, to discuss the ongoing COVID situation, the pandemic, and also the vaccine distributions, as well as economic recovery after the pandemic. So on that, before flying out to the UK, President Biden pledged 500 million doses of Pfizer vaccines to distribute over uh, 100 countries. And, and also the latest re media reports suggest that G7 nations would commit to deliver further 1 billion extra jobs to poor nations over the next 12 months. But, you know, all, all good of making such grandiose uh, uh, gestures and pledges. Uh, charities and NGO has called for more urgent actions, especially from the world's wealthiest nations to, uh, to deliver and to share more vaccines in, from their stock. So through the COVAX scheme, uh, which are currently facing an urgent shortfall of 190 million jobs. So for example, UNICEF uh, called for the G7 nations to donate 20% uh, of their uh, current vaccine supply, uh, which it believed it wouldn't have a serious impact on their you know, domestic uh, rollout programs. And besides that, there, there were also reports of uh, discussing potentially fresh uh, investigation into the origin of COVID which potentially uh, will be a very sort of a contentious topic and have, you know, associate political risk with, you know, Beijing likely to reject any further uh, investigation into, uh, into China. And then on economic recovery, you know, given Biden's uh, administration's less uh, compared with uh, his predecessor, less uh, isolationist and protectionist approach on trade. We expect we'll discuss on strengthening multilateral cooperation, especially on science and technology, whereas on resources to build uh, a more resilient global supply chain post-COVID, uh, especially on those critical sectors that has been exposed by, by the pandemic. I mean, they will be also trying to align the uh, economic recovery policy with, as James uh, already alluded, the um, climate change and environmental strategy. So expecting to more sort of a green in incentive to be bring out going forward. And lastly, as with the vaccine pledges, we see the wrangling over post-Brexit trade terms. It's just another sort of illustration to show, even though these are like-minded democratic nations and leading economic powers. There's also, you know, mounting challenging among them and their national interests might not always line up perfectly together. Yeah, I think that's clearly a relevant point whenever you get a large number of, of countries with diverging views in the same room. And I think, as we know, while this is a G7 summit, there are a number of other countries on the sidelines, notably uh, India, Australia, South Korea and South Africa, who've also been invited along with clearly the EU's participation. So with that in mind, what do you think that the broader geopolitical implications of the summit are going to be for the rest of the world? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, Phil. And I think as we've demonstrated in some of our recent reporting, Biden is really trying to use this trip not to demonstrate a, a significant policy change, but really to reiterate something that he's been saying for a while, or, or at least been wanting to say for a while, which is that America is back. So I think that 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 really goes off what Hugo was talking about earlier in terms of the 500 million vaccine doses that well, Biden has said that he will buy from Pfizer and donate to the world through COVAX. I think one other really interesting aspect of, of the relationship this weekend will be Biden's relationship with his counterpart in the UK, Boris Johnson. And already they've spoken about wanting to 
build back on the Atlantic Charter, which was signed by Churchill and Roosevelt following World War II, um, and really to reinvigorate their special relationship. I think, as, as has been mentioned already, it's quite difficult to try and work out what the tangible impact of these things are going to be. It's very easy for one to state, you know, we're back, we're looking for multilateral arrangements and agreements. It's quite another thing to actually come up with tangible goals and tangible agreements that will create real change. Just on that then, I mean, the Atlantic Charter is a, a really interesting example of that. Yes, it's great that the US and the UK are looking to build their close relationship, but it's unclear at the moment how that's actually going to manifest itself. The only thing that I can really think of or, or see so far is that a travel corridor between the two is something that's increasingly likely over the summer. And there is some discussion as to whether there will be a new plan in the, in the next year or so that will help alleviate the obstacles that British technology firms currently face when working with their US counterparts. So these are kind of longer term goals that I think Biden is trying to, to build the foundation for. I think more importantly, he's looking to use this conference as a way to build an alliance against China. And so I think that's where something like what uh, Hugo was mentioning earlier in terms of um, looking into the origins of COVID-19, kind of ruffling a few feathers in, in Beijing. I think that Biden is looking for things like that and to say, well, you know, if democracy is something that we value, then we have to stand up for that. I think many people forget, you know, he made his political career during the time of the Cold War. And for, for Biden, uh, democracy and kind of opposition to Russia and China and creating alliances between Europe and the US is something that he's really looking to reinvigorate. And this G7 summit, whilst not signaling a big change in policy, is definitely uh, a place where he's going to try and emphasize and, and start the foundation to rebuild those structures. Yes, James, definitely. I mean, from uh, APAC's point of view, you know, one can not look beyond who's not at a meeting uh, or in the in the G7 group, China, uh, you, as you mentioned. Beijing would watch this with great interest and potentially see this as uh, attempts by the Biden administrations that uh, advocate Washington's, you know, uh, this multi, multilateral approach in, in terms of building up or strengthening existing allies and creating new alliances uh, in the face of a growing uh, influence uh, from, from China on the global rule-based border. So what we like to, to see is political uh, perspective. It's like a continuation, if not intensification, of this ongoing China-US strategic rivalry. Before the G7 meeting, the US Senate passed a bill which basically is, is a document that, you know, drum up a comprehensive uh, strategy uh, to compete uh, with China, whether, whether it's through, you know, building up its uh, domestic industries uh, and maintaining uh, technological uh, superiority or try to curb China's, you know, uh, what they regard as uh, malicious uh, practices. So these are at what we see uh, basically of a big opportunity uh, for the uh, for for Washington to basically uh, discuss the idea and, and build up consensus among uh, among their allies. From Beijing's point of view, of of course, we see that, that they are showing uh, uncompromising stance. A few what they see as you know diplomatic right line uh, topics or issues such as Xinjiang, Hong Kong, or Taiwan, and just. Today, they, the government passed uh, a law on basically giving more uh, legal framework uh, for them to resist or for the Chinese companies to resist foreign sanctions. 
So as you can see, you know, um, this, this kind of a tit for tat conflict or rivalry will be uh, ongoing and, and, and potentially be intensifying as we hire, uh, you know, we, we hire into the, the second part of this year. And for that, obviously, business would still be operating at an incredibly uh, challenging uh, geopolitical uh, environment um, and potentially facing uh, being sort of uh, uh, caught up in, in this uh, interstate tensions in the form of, you know, pol uh, politically driven tariff or trade restrictions, as well as, you know, political harassment or regulatory uh, scrutiny. Thanks for that, Hugo. So I, I think we obviously covered the strategic fairly well, so let's go down to tactical. We know that events like G7 summits in the past have, have attracted protests of, of one form or another, and um, judging by the media footage we've seen so far, there's a fairly substantial security presence down in Cornwall this weekend. But what are the prospects for, for protests and disruption locally during the course of the event? I mean, pretty pretty much without a doubt, there will be protests. Um, a few have already been organised by several different groups. I think, broadly speaking, these have been um, these could be categorised into those who are protesting or, or the kill, uh, as part of the Kill the Bill movement in the UK and those who are protesting in favour of uh, climate change regulation and changes along that front, especially Extinction Rebellion. It should be noted that there has already been a bomb scare, so with around 100 people in and around the hotel where the where the conference is taking place having been evacuated, bomb disposal unit was, was, was brought to the scene though and, and declared that the package was unviable and a suspect has since been arrested on suspicion of bomb hoax. I think Big incidents like this will, will be likely throughout the weekend. Uh, however, I think it's unlikely that there are going to be significant business implications for most companies. Protesters who are protesting there are protesting governments by and large. They're protesting uh, for a desire to see change in policy. And so, yes, the, any following change in policy will impact businesses, but I don't think the protesters themselves will necessarily draw reputational damage threats or um, explicit threats to, to operations for businesses throughout the weekend. Yes, James. I, I mean, having spent several years living in the county Cornwall, I, I know the local residents in Sunlife and, and uh, Cardiff Bay would be, uh, if not shocked, very surprised to see the heavy security presence, probably the unprecedented, you know, suddenly see 6,000 uh, mostly armed police officers descending on, uh, onto their village. But, you know, given such a high profile of meetings, uh, gatherings, that, you know, that, that there is definitely a, a ring of steel around the meeting venues uh, and surrounding areas. So it'll be very difficult, you know, hardened activists may try, but it will be incredibly difficult for, for them to get past um, the, the various security or, or vehicle checkpoints entering the lives. And, and for that, the police or authority have planned and designated for protest sites uh, throughout uh, the West Country, uh, Exeter, Plymouth, Farmers and Truro. But it'd be interesting to see how much, you know, activity is actually going on there. Or, you know, as James alluded, um, the uh, Distinction Rebellion or the Kill the uh, Bill protest will, uh, will actively or deliberately uh, try to not to follow the advice and try to find uh, other sites to, to protest. Okay, thanks, Debo. Uh, and now we'll just do a quick wrap-up of events to watch in the week ahead. It goes without saying that Top of the Bill is the conference that we've just been discussing, the G7 Summit down in Cornwall this weekend on, from the 11th to the 13th of June. Obviously, we've already discussed the prospects of protests in and around the event itself, but there could also be some elsewhere in, in cities in the UK, particularly Bristol and London. Then looking further ahead, 
on on the 14th of June in Israel, there's set to be a vote on a new coalition government. And while it looks likely that at the time of, of recording that the vote will pass uh, and deliver Israel's first proper government since um, a spate of elections began over two years ago, increasing stability and, and clarity around economic policy, among other things. There could well be some isolated protests by right-wing and orthodox groups who are opposed to the composition of the new coalition, which includes some Arab parties in an unprecedented move. So similarly, on the 15th of June, also in Israel, uh, we've got a a march by uh, right-wing groups through eastern Jerusalem, which was approved um, the day before yesterday. Uh, And that's likely to bring some clashes um, with police, potentially, and also with Palestinians in, in certain neighborhoods. And as a result, if it's been badly handled, like we saw um, early last month, um, it could lead to wider unrest between um, Israeli Arabs and Jews elsewhere in the country. Staying in the Middle East, on the 18th of June, we've got presidential elections in Iran. Um, and although there will be relatively few uh, tactical implications from this, the uh, upshot is likely to be that uh, a hardliner will be elected, as distinct from uh, President Hassan Rouhani, the moderate who's been in power for uh, the last eight years. Uh, and as a consequence, the nuclear talks which are ongoing with the US uh, are likely to be delayed somewhat um, with regards to finding a, a route back to some kind of um, nuclear deal as was struck in, in 2015. So to the 20th of June in Japan, a state of emergency restrictions imposed in Tokyo, Osaka and seven other prefectures are set to end if the government decides not to extend them further. And the Tokyo 2020 Games organisers will decide whether or not to allow domestic spectators at the upcoming Games around the same time. So uh, hostility to the Games and the government's decision to hold them amid the um, ongoing pandemic has prompted some modest protests uh, so far, and these could escalate, obviously, given the, the, the state of emergency restrictions and the decisions that's made thereon. And there's potentially, therefore, an uptick in protests in due course and also some reputational concerns for the Games organisers, partners and sponsors. So that's it for our look ahead um, for events to watch in the the coming week. Um, And again, if you want to get in touch with us or ask any questions, contact us on LinkedIn or email info at sibyline.co.uk. Thank you very much.